Okay. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you, Dr. Jones, for joining uh, the Genesis Group. Uh, I'm delighted to have you again. Uh, we had um, our first conversation on We Are the 99%, if you remember. That was the first time that you joined Telegram. And I understand that now you have your own group. <laughs> yes, yes. So thanks for introducing me. Yeah, I, I, I'm delighted to do that. Uh, so I would just say a few things about uh, Dr. Jones. Uh, he's the owner of uh, Culture Wars uh, magazine. He's the author of many important books like The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, Libido, Dominandi, The Slaughter of Cities, and The Logos Rising. And I thank you very much for coming because this is uh, extremely important times and we need uh, to be able to receive your education because uh, we are lost. Uh, the things that you are experiencing in the West are happening here in Israel. And I would like to help my audience to inform it with your knowledge and vast research to help them understand the things that we are dealing with. Although you recognize that as mostly a Jewish phenomenon, and we will discuss it a little later. Um, so the first question that I would like for you, for you to answer is for me to try, for you to try to connect the enlightenment and um, everything that we see today, the destruction of morality, uh, the, the fact that we are distancing ourselves from tradition, from religion, from everything that is beautiful and honest. And uh, maybe we can use the example because our group is a bit on the conspiracy side. Maybe you can speak about uh, Adam Weishaupt and the Illuminati and what they did and how it's affecting us until today, if we can speak about that first. Okay. Okay. So uh, if we're talking about the uh, Enlightenment uh, or we're talking about France or we're talking about Freemasonry, uh, we can begin with the Whig oligarchs in England taking over the Masonic lodges and then using them as a weapon uh, to destroy the Bourbon monarchy. Uh, England was at war with France at this time. The Masonic lodges uh, became conduits for anti-theistic, uh, anti-religious propaganda, and also pornography. Uh, the Palais Royal was a, a major producer of pornography, uh, and uh, the ball got rolling. And uh, that's exactly what happened. They uh, overthrew the uh, the uh, Bourbon monarchy. One of the groups that was involved here was the um, the Illuminati. The word gets used a lot, but the Illuminati were a real group. They were centered in Bavaria, uh, primarily at the uh, university in Ingolstadt, and uh, their leader was Adam Weishaupt. Adam Weishaupt uh, was a canon lawyer, I believe, uh, but he created his own uh, Masonic Lodge that was uh, basically based on Jesuit spirituality, in particular the uh, Jesuits' practice of examination of, the co of conscience. He called it Zalin Analusa, which is basically you control people by, uh, by uh, talking to them, having like an examination of conscience, uh, leading to confession where they tell you what their sins have been, and then you know what their desires are, and then you get to manipulate these people through their desires. The man who picked this up, this, this was uh, described in a book by Abbe Barrowell, uh, called Memoirs for the History of Jacobinism. He said the Illuminati took over the, uh, the free, Ma the Masonic lodges and created the revolution. This, this is impossible. Uh, but he did reveal all of the Illuminati documents. And, uh, this became an underground bestseller over the course of the 19th century. 
Byron and Shelley read it. Uh, they discussed it in their summer on Lake uh, Geneva. But the most important man who read it was Sigmund Freud. And he just changed Zeitlin Analyse, which is the German word, uh, which means analysis of the soul, into psychoanalyse or psychoanalysis. And that became one of the forms of control uh, over the course of the 20th century. His, um, his nephew, Eddie Bernays, kind of democratized it. He was in America and used it as the foundation of public relations and the manipulation of media as a form of controlling people. That has led up to this day uh, via Wilhelm Reich, uh, another Jew uh, from Austria who wrote The Mass Psychology of Fascism, which brought together communism and psychoanalysis. He was both a he was a Jew, he was a psychoanalyst, and he was also a member of the Communist Party. And he talked about the promotion of vice, in particular masturbation, as a form of control because it basically caused the Catholic population to lose its contact with God. If you put all these people together, you have basically, this is the story of uh, Libido Dominandi, you have the history of cultural subversion as it took place in Europe over this period of time and in America. Uh, in Germany, uh, this regimen was imposed on the conquered German people, largely by Jewish uh, psychoanalysts who were brought in by the Allies uh, to basically uh, work out systems of control for the German people. The, ma uh, the man who was in charge of uh, handing out licenses uh, for periodicals, books, anything else was David Mordecai Levy, a Jewish psychiatrist from New York City. This had a devastating effect on Germany because it corrupted their sexual morals and it led directly to the zombie nation that is Germany right now, where they all know that the Americans blew up their pipeline and they can't, can't uh, they can't, they have so internalized the commands of their oppressors that they simply can't object it. And now they're all going to freeze to death in their apartments. This is also uh, a one more point. It is the fulfillment of the Morgenthau plan, which was the Jewish plan after World War II to destroy Germany. Uh, that is now being fulfilled. The deindustrialization of Germany, which means its extinction, is now being carried out by the Green Party in Germany uh, as loyal vassals of the American Empire. Yes, uh, we can discuss that a little later, but I would really like to, for you to go back again uh, to the time of the Enlightenment, because this is the time where they are trying to destroy the relationship between the, the people of Europe and, and God. And they are removing all those Christian values that protected the family and the community. And then the degradation begin and um, the decadence that we see today. So can you speak a little bit, just, just because my audience are not familiar with that, maybe you can use the example of the Marquise de Sade and to speak again about like the, the, the tools that Adam Weishaupt and those illuminates uh, used uh, to be able to, to destroy the, the old ways and how they bought this connection of Freemasons and the Jesuit order and basically bought about like a secular uh, with no values, no virtues kind of society and then maybe connect it to today and demonstrate to us, uh, you know, what it does to Western civilization. Yeah, the, the Marquis de Sade was a, a French aristocrat uh, who had been put into prison because he was his life was completely out of control. He was a sexual deviant whose life was out of control. And so his, uh, uh, his in-laws had him committed to a prison. The prison was the Bastille. 
he was there. He's the man who, in effect, uh, started the French Revolution. I, I'm not changing anything I said. I'm, he was the immediate cause of the French Revolution because a mob had gathered outside the Bastille, and he started haranguing the mob uh, from his cell, and they broke into the Bastille and basically opened up, uh, let all the prisoners out, and that was the beginning of the French Revolution. He wrote a book called uh, Justine. Uh, it's pornography, uh, and uh, he is in many ways the predecessor to Wilhelm Reich, a kind of intermediary between Adam Weishaupt and uh, Wilhelm Reich. Uh, in this book, uh, he, th there was a, a moment of uh, counter-reaction against the revolution. The Catholics from the Vendée were heading from the West and were going to take over the capital. And he, he uh, said, uh, uh, wrote a, a, a speech in which he said, what we need to do is reinvigorate the revolution by restoring passion. And the best way to do this was to uh, exhibit women naked in the theaters. Uh, there, there's a problem here because it's a technological problem, because basically if you have a big theater, uh, you can get a lot of uh, men in, but you can't get a good look at the women unless you're in the front row. If you have a small theater, you can get a good look at the women, but you can't get a lot of people in. This was a technological problem that got solved over the course of the 19th and 20th century. First of all, with the invention of uh, photography uh, by Daguerre in France in the middle of the 19th century. And then secondly, by the creation of the motion picture camera and the motion picture uh, film motion pictures, which the Hollywood, uh, the Jews in Hollywood took over. Uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. At this point, you could create mass phenomena. And that's precisely what happened over the course of the 20th century. There was a protest in America against this. Uh, the, the Protestants didn't like it. There are three groups in America, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. And the Protestants and the Catholics were annoyed at the Jews who were running Hollywood because of their subversion of sexual morality. And uh, eventually the Catholics su succeeded in reining them in and instituted the production code, which banned nudity and obscenity and ridicule of the clergy. That, I, go ahead. Yeah, I think that it was reversed with the pawnbroker in 1964. That was the first Jewish movie that uh, promoted um, uh, homosexuality. Uh, I think there was no, a, a character... No. No, wait a minute. There's no homosexuality in the pawnbroker. They broke the, you're right. It did, it is the movie that broke the code. It is a quintessentially Jewish movie because it's about the Holocaust. But the, they broke the code by uh, a woman taking off her shirt and it was a uh, bare breast that, that broke the code. At that point, the Catholics lost their control of Hollywood. And at that point, they lost their ability to uphold the moral order in the United States. And so there's a direct connection right after the pawnbroker. Within seven years, you had hardcore pornography being shown in first-run movie theaters. Pornography was run by the Jews. Once you had that, the, the Jews were on their way to taking over our foreign policy, and that eventually led to the war in Iraq, and that led to the war in Ukraine, which is going on right now. This was a crucial turning point in American history and American culture because the Catholics lost control of the narrative at that point. This is incredible. Um, I, I understand that you want to speak about the conversation you had with Ben Shapiro about abortion. And abortion is a big deal in this group. Uh, I don't want to call it abortion. It's murder, baby murder. Uh, can you speak to that a little, please? 
Molded yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I, I sent you that article. I just finished the article this morning. I would have sent it sooner, but I just finished it this morning. I went to a, a right to life banquet in South Bend, Indiana, and Ben Shapiro was the main speaker and he gave a very, uh, a, a talk that didn't really address the fundamental issue right now facing us, which is basically after the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court decision allowing abortion. The overturning took place in the spring of this year. The every 140 Jewish organizations emerged and said that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. Now, this was totally new. The, the abortion issue began. It was the Jews who created the abortion issue in the late 60s. The two people responsible were two Jews, Bernard Nathanson and Lawrence Later, both from New York. <clears throat> At this point, the, the New York Times, which was run by Jews, uh, never mentioned anything ethnic about the people who were promoting it. Nathanson was simply a gynecologist. The only ethnic uh, group in America that got mentioned were the Catholics, and they were trying to impose their views on everyone else by preventing abortion. So here's uh, Ben Shapiro, the, the Jew coming to speak in South Bend, Indiana. The one thing that he should have talked about, he completely ignored. The one thing that is new is the fact that the Jews are now saying that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. So basically, I had to bring it up in the Q&A, and he immediately denied it and cited some rabbi. Shapiro is a conservative. He's uh, pro, pro-life. I'm not going to deny that he's pro-life. But then he goes on to say, well, these aren't really Jews. Well, at this point, he gets in trouble because, I mean, who is Ben Shapiro? Is, is he the Jewish pope? Can he excommunicate any Jew that disagrees with him? Uh, so I said, well, wait, uh, wait a minute. This is 140 Jewish organizations covering the entire spectrum from left to right. Plus, there are secular organizations like the ADL. And they're all saying abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. I think they're right. Well, he wouldn't agree with that, but I, I still think they're right. And I think that Ben Shapiro is deluding himself, or maybe he's trying to control the narrative on the conservative side of the of the operation here. But I think it, it is true. Abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. Now, what conclusions are you going to draw when you say that? The first conclusion, uh, the conclusion they want you to draw is basically if you uh, – if you restrict access to abortion, you are preventing the Jew from practicing his religion. That is the argument. I'm not making this up. This is the argument that is now going through the courts in Florida and other states in America. Okay. Well, if, if that's your, if that's your argument, then you have to say that if you're, and they've said this too, if you're against abortion, if you're anti, uh, if you're anti-abortion, you're anti-Semitic. That's the next stage of this argument. And then the Catholics say to Catholics, well, Catholics are not allowed to be anti-Semitic, so Catholics have to be pro-abortion. This is ridiculous. Okay, what what I'm saying is if your if your religion involves the killing of innocent human beings, then you're not worshiping Yahweh, you're worshiping Moloch. And you have to come to the conclusion, that conclusion is inescapable. And if, if so, Ben Shapiro, I, you know, if you're pro-life and you're a Jew, you kind of have to make a choice. Are you going to be pro-life 
Are you going to accept what is obvious from the moral point of view, which is basically this is murder, taking an innocent life? Or are you going to have to, to uh, reevaluate your religion? It's one or the other. This is a crisis right now uh, that has to be resolved. Um, wh- what is it, according to your research, what is it about the Jews um, that is enabling this kind of behavior, this revolutionary behavior, according to your research? Well, I, I cover this in the, in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Uh, I, I, was, I started this in 2003 when the Jews took over our foreign policy and they were getting us involved in one, a war in Iraq that didn't serve American interests. And so I had to decide, well, what is a Jew? And in order to define that, I had to go back beyond this racial designation. Anti-Semitism is a racial designation that came into existence in 1871 uh, through Wilhelm Marr's book, just Der Sieg des Judentums über das Germanentums. I had to go back to that, to I think, what is, what is f- the fundamental issue here, which is basically the reception of Jesus Christ on this earth. Jesus Christ comes, the, G, the Hebrews at this point have to decide, is he the Messiah or not, uh, if on his terms, okay? They eventually come to the conclusion, the Jews rejected Christ, okay? What do I mean by that? I mean the Jewish people. Does that mean every single Jew in Jerusalem yelled, crucify him? No, that's not true. That's not true. His mother was, had Jewish DNA. She didn't do that. There was a group of people who took control of the Jewish people. The leaders took control. They whipped them up into a frenzy and then they killed Christ. When you kill Christ, you're killing the Logos incarnate. Uh, and when you're killing, you're rebelling against Logos, which is the order of the universe. Logos is God. That's what St. John said. If you're rebelling against the order of the universe, you're a revolutionary. And that's what the, that's the Jewish identity today. It has been the Jewish identity ever since that decision to reject Christ. The first manifestation of this came about 30, 30 some years later when the Jews uh, in Jerusalem rose up against the Roman Empire and they were crushed at that point. And at that point, the Romans destroyed their temple, which meant that the Jews had no priesthood, no sacrifice, and no temple. And that meant they couldn't fulfill the Mosaic Covenant. At that point, they created a new religion. It's called the religion of the synagogue. Judaism comes about uh, over the next few centuries, and it's codified in a book called the Talmud, which is now the essence of what Jews believe. The Talmud is rejection of Logos in a different way. But what we're having here is the, the Jewish involvement in one revolutionary adventure after another, all the way up to the present day, all the way up to the present day, including Bolshevism and so on and so forth. It's, it's a long book. Uh, I recommend that you read it for, for the details. I would really like for you to, to demonstrate what happened in 1917 and the Bolshevik Revolution to, just for the audience to have a little bit of an understanding what really happens when there is such a revolution uh, inspired by over-representative people who so-called belong to Judaism. Not so-called, belong to Judaism. Okay, okay. In order to understand what happened in, in St. Petersburg in 1917, we have to go back to what happened in the shtetl which is the pale of the settlement uh, during the course of the 19th century. 
Okay, the, the uh, Poland, uh, the, the Jews, the overwhelming majority of Jews lived in on the western, uh, eastern border of Poland. Poland is partitioned. They're now on the western border of Russia. And they are, all of these enlightenment ideas are seeping into the shtetl. Uh, and the Jews are being exposed to this for the first time, revolutionary ideas. Okay. And they immediately adopt them because they're fertile ground. I've already explained why they're fertile ground for revolutionary ideas. And they start creating their own secret societies. Uh, one of them was, uh, Charity Paradell, the Black Path. Uh, and this was just to go to the peasants and bring revolution to the peasants, uh, through education. It didn't work. Okay. So at this point, the Jews decided they are going to get in, into terrorism and they, they, they created an organization called Narod Nayavolia, which means the national will. And they succeed at this point in bringing about one of their assassination attempts. They assassinate the czar in 1881. This causes a, a huge uh, reaction against the Jews, drives a lot of the Jews over to the United States of America. That organization, uh, the men, one of the men who died because of that plot was uh, Vladimir Lenin's older brother. When, when Lenin came to the university, the university is a hotbed of revolutionary activity at this point. He was inducted into Nyavolia, and this is the group that basically eventually became the Bolsheviks who took over uh, Russia at that point. What you had here was a group of Jewish revolutionaries taking over what was the, one of the last Christian countries in Europe and subjugating it to a reign of terror. Terror. And I'm talking specifically about the Cheka, uh, the Extraordinary Committee to Combat Terrorism and Counter-Revolution, which was created one month after the revolution. So we're talking about December of 1917, created this Jewish terrorist organization to basically terrorize the entire Russian population. Why do I call it a Jewish terrorist organization? Because Russians simply wouldn't get involved in torturing other Russians. And when Lenin created this, uh, Trotsky created this thing, they had to get uh, Jews and Latvians in order to do this. And they succeeded in basically cowing, terrorizing the, the Russian people for the next 70 years. With 65 million deads, according to what I understand. Is that a correct? lot of people died. A lot of people died. Uh, yes, a lot of people died. Um, and I would like to go back to pornography and how this is being used as a political uh, weapon against us. And what can we do to protect the youth, the families against it? Okay, the best example uh, of how, why pornography as a weapon comes from Israel uh, the, where the Israelis, uh, uh, the IDF invaded Ramallah in 2004. And one of the first is not unusual, but, uh, this time they did something unusual. They took over the TV stations and they started broadcasting pornography from Palestinian TV stations. Now I've given this talk, I gave this talk a number of places in Washington and in Switzerland. In both instances, there were Palestinians in the audience who said they were there when it happened and it was worse than what I was saying. Uh, they stationed snipers on the uh, the roof of the hospital and basically uh, would shoot anyone who came out of the house, which may meant that in order to get any information, the Palestinians had to watch television, which meant they had to watch pornography. Now, in America, you can watch movies saying pornography means freedom. 
The People versus Larry Flint is based on this premise. So according to that uh, calculus, it means that the Israelis wanted to bring freedom to the people of uh, Ramallah. Well, that's preposterous because what happened here is what, what we exposed here is pornography as a weapon, a weapon of psychological warfare. The same thing happened in Iraq after the Americans conquered that. The same thing happened in Portugal in 1974 when the Salazar regime fell. The CIA flooded the country with pornography. Same thing happened in Panama. Pornography is a weapon. And the Jews were in charge of pornography in this country. They are the people who are responsible for the decriminalization of pornography through a series of uh, Supreme Court cases that took place over the 60s. And they used it as a weapon against the majority population. What does, what does it do? Why is it a weapon? It's a weapon because pornography derails thought. If the late, the, the most significant promoter of pornography right now, as far as I can tell, is Twitter. And the problem here with Twitter is you can't tell when it's going to show up. This is, this is a further step in the weaponization of pornography. So you're doing research into something like the Ukraine or Russia or something like that. That's what the hashtag is. Suddenly, it's pornography on the screen. All I can, can conclude from this is the fact that Twitter doesn't want you to think. Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas says, lust darkens the mind. That's the same principle that we had with the story of Samson in the Old Testament. Samson was unconquerable until he succumbed to lust. And the symbol that he had succumbed to lust was a Delilah or Dalila had cut his eyes out. He was blinded by that. He was blinded by lust, literally. That is the secret for uh, of why pornography is a weapon. It can be used against the majority population to basically destroy their culture, uh, to cripple an entire generation, which is precisely what happened in America to the 20 year olds, uh, generation who grew up watching this stuff on their, on their cell phones. They're incapable of forming relationships with the opposite sex. This is a disaster for American culture. And it was the Jews who did it. You know, it's so upsetting for me to to understand that and and to see the overpresentation of Jews in every aspect of the destruction of of civilization. Basically, um, can can you speak also about the LGBT and the normalization of all this transgenderism and the effect yeah. it has on our? Yeah. So I so we have a situation in the United States of America where if uh, if some Jew doesn't like what he you say. Uh, he will destroy you. This is the story of Kanye West that is happening right now. There was a black Jewish alliance. Uh, Kanye West got annoyed. He brought, he brought it to everyone's attention and now the Jews are trying to destroy him. This is precisely, uh, what happens, uh, with gay marriage. Okay. Now I could say the Jews are behind gay marriage. And if I say that someone is invariably going to call me an anti-Semite. Okay, but what they're leaving out of the picture is that the Jews say that. Except the only difference between the Jew saying it and me saying it is that I'm saying it's negative and the Jew is bragging about this achievement. And I'm talking specifically about a lady by the name of Amy Dean, who wrote for a Jewish magazine called Tikkun. And she said, basically, the Jews were behind gay marriage. If it weren't for gay marriage, 
if it weren't for the Jews, we would not have gay marriage. Well, Joe Biden said the same thing when he was vice president. We have this intolerable double standard here in America now, on primarily through the Internet, where if you say exactly the same thing that a Jew says, but you say it in a way that the, somebody like the ADL doesn't like, uh, they have a license to destroy you. This is an intolerable situation. It can't go on. Can't go on. Um, it, it, can you can you please tell us uh, do, do you recognize any solutions because it seems like when I look to the West or even here in Israel I don't see men anymore protecting anything and it's like what are the solutions to this problem I think the subversion of society is so bad already that how do you turn the, the boat around what needs to be done first of all you have to recognize the problem you have to recognize that let's say pornography is a problem it's not freedom it's a problem and it's a problem that an entire generation has so when I wrote libido dominandi it was about 25 years ago and I said sexual liberation is a form of political control uh, everybody laughed oh that's that's a joke this is ridiculous well now they're not laughing anymore because you've got an entire generation of 20 year olds who are uh, uh, who are slaves to their passions and addicted to pornography and masturbation so the first thing you have to do is explain the situation explain give give the real story here rather than the propaganda that Hollywood and, and the news media are promoting if this this explanation alone, Just to say that sexual liberation is a form of control alone caught some people to stop uh, break their pornography habit. Uh, just the explanation alone was enough in some instances. Now it's, it's a bad habit. sometimes it takes more than that. But I'm saying that wherever we're talking, so I was in Iran it's almost the 10th anniversary of my first trip to Iran. I wrote Logos Rising because of my trip to Iran. We're in a situation now where we have a global culture, and I'm trying to figure out what is the what is the is it possible to have a global conversation? Is it possible to talk to Israelis and Iranians? I think it is because we are creatures we are rational creatures who are created by God, and the fundamental thing we share with God and with other human beings is logos is reason. And so this is possible. First of all, what we're doing right now is really important because every, the point of basically every Jewish organization right now in the United States is to prevent discussions, to prevent anyone from saying something that they don't like by getting you deplatformed. I'm saying the solution is the opposite. The solution is Logos. This, and the first manifestation of Logos is speech. Which means talking to each other honestly and not talking shadow boxing, not promoting ideologies and so on and so forth. I'm saying this is the solution universally. I just wrote an article I can send you the article too, if you're interested, about the situation in Iran. People, uh, people uh, have asked me to come to Iran to help resolve the hijab crisis. How are we going to resolve the hijab crisis in Iran? It's a CIA feminist uh, attempt to overthrow the government. But then again, on the other hand, you've got a, a group of mullahs who uh, don't have a, a fully rational approach to, to, the, to the situation. We're going to have to have some type of dialogue here be between these two extremes, which will involve the, the large middle grounds of the population. Which are Muslim because they that is the way they worship God as 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 they understand.
What we have to do is cut out middlemen like uh, the your famous uh, philosopher uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who is writing all sorts of rubbish right now, trying to pollute the minds of people all across the country. By the way, I devote the second chapter of Logos Rising to a discussion of his ideas uh, uh, where you can find out in depth uh, what I think about this guy. But it's, he's promoting something that is completely irrational, that is also uh, a direct attack on Genesis, because he's saying you will be like gods if you follow my idea. This is a complete subversion of what the Old Testament says. It's a complete subversion of all rational behavior, and he needs to be called on it and exposed. He's a disgusting man. Um, can you speak about femi- feminism, especially the third wave, and again, uh, the effect and destruction it brings? Yes, feminism uh, is uh, uh, now a primar- uh, an obsolete, pretty much obsolete revolutionary I- uh, ideology, revolutionary movement, except in Iran. In, in Iran, feminism is now the cutting edge of revolution and the attempt to overthrow the government. So what, what is feminism? Basically, the founders of uh, feminism were people like Betty Friedan, whose maiden name was Goldstein. So she's a Jewish lady from New York who basically grew up as a communist and then shifted the focus of, away from uh, control of the means of production, which economic issues, into sexual issues. This is one of the big changes that took place in left thinking over this period of time. Uh, people like uh, uh, Gramsci and Michel Foucault are absolutely crucial if you want to understand how the left switched from talking about economics to talking about sex uh, as a, a way of subverting the culture. Feminism was that intermediary step. So basically you apply class conflict now to the family and you wreck the family. Uh, and that's considered a heroic activity. Uh, it's tikkun olam. This is always the way the Jews uh, portray their revolutionary activity. It's healing the world when you're actually disrupting the world and destroying the culture that allowed you in as, as, as an outsider. So the net result of feminism is the destruction of marriage. The net result of the destru- uh, uh, destruction of marriage is the weakening of the family. And the net result of the weakening of the family is you create a, a, a society of rootless, helpless narcissistic individuals who are easy to push around. That is the whole point. It took over the Catholic Church. I was hired at a Catholic college, Reno in South Bend. I was hired as a professor of American literature at St. Mary's College and got fired because the feminists had taken over that institution. So this is the type of subversion that has happened across the board in places like the Catholic Church in America uh, uh, and we're still suffering the consequences. I'm completely ignorant to, to this uh, subject, but uh, does it have any meaning that the Pope today is a Jesuit, the first Jesuit? And yes. what is the effect of the Jesuit order on subversion of the Catholic Church? Yes, that's a good question. Good question. First of all, the Jesuits were an absolutely heroic group of men who would uh, had no problem about walking into the jungles of Paraguay or to the frozen waste of the Gaspe Peninsula, sitting down, learning languages like Abnaki and Guarani, writing the dictionary, writing the grammar, heroic figures. Matteo Ricci did the same thing in China, a Portuguese guy who showed up in China and learned Chinese. Think of that, okay? Uh, they were the bulwark against the French Revolution. 
And so in the middle of the 18th century, the Masonic lodges decided they had to suppress the Jesuits. It was Catholics who were going to the Pope, the Marquis de Pombal in Portugal and the Duc de Choiseul uh, from France went, uh, uh, persuaded the, the church to persuaded the Pope to suppress the Jesuits. Once that happened, the way was clear for the French Revolution. That's what happened. Now, we have a completely different situation. If you're talking about America in the 19th, in the 20th century, you have the main problem with the Catholic Church in America is it is too American. Uh, Pope Leo XIII called it a heresy. Americanism is a heresy. The Jesuits fell for that hook, line, and sinker. Uh, during the crucial period after the war when America was in charge of the anti-communist crusade. Seemed like a good idea. We all dislike communism, but they get sucked into the American orbit. And that's where the Jesuits are today. They are a fifth column within the Catholic Church that is promoting the agenda of George Soros just uh, and other oligarchs, other masters of the universe. It's a catastrophe for the church. The Pope is a Jesuit who is basically an old man who delegates all of the responsibilities of the papacy to underlings who are also Jesuits, and they are destroying the church right now. So we can only pray for deliverance uh, from these people. Dr. Jones, um, unfortunately, most of the people who are going to hear this uh, interview, they don't even understand anymore what, what does it mean to have values or virtues or, 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 or how to live a proper life, life where you can uh, constrain your passions and uh, live a life with reason. Uh, can, can you give us some knowledge, like a, a grandfather who speaks to, a, to his family and tells them, on how to do things better for the future, because I, I, I know that, um, I, I mean, people are lost and I would like to have your guidance as a practical solution on how people can get away from this materialistic emptiness and dullness and uh, what is it that they should strive for? How do they connect again to divinity? And not necessarily through Jesus, because un unfortunately, my audience is not very likely to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. But still, maybe we can understand the values and then bridge the gaps between our societies. Okay, I'm, I am a grandfather. I have 21 grandchildren. And so I can talk as a grandfather that my oldest grandchildren are all in their 20s. What is the fundamental, crucial issue that you face in, when you're in your 20s. You have to meet the, a member of the opposite sex and form a family. This will, this will form your life for the rest of your life on this earth. And I was fortunate enough to uh, do this uh, at an early age. I was, uh, when I was, uh, I got married, I was 21 years old in 1969, the high point of the cultural revolution in America. My wife was 20. And because we were married, we were saved from a lot of the bad things that happened to the rest of our, our generation. Friends uh, I had in high school uh, were swept away by sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, if you go to Culture Wars, the most recent uh, issue of Culture Wars, I have a review of a book who was a baby boomer like me, a woman. Uh, she was seven years younger, which is a huge difference. And she talks about how her family was swept away by sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So if you're, uh, if you're a 20 year old, 
you're probably addicted to pornography. The first thing you have to do is break this addiction. Now, I don't, I, some people could do it on their own. It's, it's, I can't predict how people are going to do it because if you don't break, break this prediction, you will forever be isolated in your, uh, a cocoon, a prison that the culture has made for you to ruin your life. They don't care about your life. They just want you docile and happy and under control. And if sex isn't enough, they'll let you smoke dope too. This is the, the fate that is prepared for you by our culture. And it's a terrible fate. And you have to break away from it because it will ruin your life. Now, sin is a very difficult thing to do. And uh, oftentimes, you cannot do it on your own. That's part of the problem. That's why the Jews long for a Messiah. Okay, they needed someone to help them. Okay, sometimes you have to appeal to God. Uh, God knows your situation. You appeal to God, and He will answer your prayers. So, if you put those two things together, you you will be able to live a life which is based on logos, which is reason. You'll be able to bring your passions under control, and if you do that, you will have a successful life. Thank you. Uh, let's speak a little bit about art and beauty and music. Uh, I think you wrote about a, a, a book about music as well or art in general. Am I, I just finished. I just finished a book uh, called. Uh, I have the, finished it a year ago, but we just have we have copies now called "The Dangers of Beauty: The Conflict Between Mimesis and Concupiscence in the Fine Arts," and it's a, it discusses beauty. Beauty is a transcendental. The good, the true. And the beautiful are all aspects of being. They are all aspects of God. And the significant thing about beauty is it can oftentimes lead you to God when reason or your moral uh, compass cannot get you there. They all end up at the same place, but sometimes the artist can can portray what the philosopher cannot explain. And that is true for periods, long periods of history. So this is a book about the development of art, which is always imitation of nature, the rise of art in Italy, the paintings, uh, the problems that come with beauty. Uh, if you get really good at portraying the female form, it's so lifelike that it can arouse uh, sexual desires, which is, of course, the whole point of pornography. Uh, but uh, the Catholic culture in Italy triumphed over that, and they preserved art. Uh, for They're still there. If you want to go know who the great artists are, look at Italy, even up to the 20th century. The classic example being uh, being the, the man who did uh, the portrait of Queen Elizabeth, whose name escapes me at this moment. Uh, anyway all the way up to the 20th century, imitating nature, coming up with beauty and leading people out of their mundane lives. So I, there was a period in my life when I was uh, estranged from the Catholic Church. I was not going to church. I was lost. And I listened to Handel's Messiah. And the beauty of that piece of music drove me out of my chair all the way to the door of the church. But I couldn't go in for some reason or other. But that shows you the power of beauty, how it can motivate you. And we need, if we don't have beauty in our lives, we will, uh, have, we have to have beauty in our lives. If we don't have, uh, beauty in some type of higher artistic form, we will seek beauty in sensuality and that will lead, uh, in the opposite direction. 
So that's what the book is about. Uh, the second part is about music in Germany, uh, the great breakthrough in mimesis that Bach and Beethoven achieved. Uh, it's about the next part is about poetry in England. And then the final part uh, is about the 20th century, which is basically when the Jews took over the art world and wrecked it. Uh, we have people, uh, art, artists, what happened is the, the eclipse of the artists and the rise of the Jewish art dealer. Uh, the man who created Picasso was a German Jew by the name of uh, Kahnweiler. Uh, we had the same thing in New York City uh, with uh, Leo Castelli, who's an Italian name, but he was a Jew as well. And art became insider trading. And we reached the point where uh, we, this the most recent story I've seen, it's on the news right now, is there was a painting by Piet Mondrian, the famous Dutch painter, abstract painter, and it's been hanging upside down for 75 years because no one could tell whether it was right side up or upside down. <laughs> the, the other, there's another anecdote, which is probably apocryphal, where the, I don't know whether you've noticed that there are people, climate activists, who are throwing soup on famous paintings. Yes. Well, uh, some climate activists threw a can of soup onto a painting by Jackson Pollock, and nobody noticed because <laughs> it was already it was already nothing but dripping to begin with. So, if you want an understanding of how you went from something beautiful like Rubens' portrait of the uh, Princess Spinola Doria to something uh, incomprehensible like Jackson Pollock uh, dripping paintings, uh, that's what this book is about. Okay. I would like to, to, to get a little more information about the difference in music. So maybe you can compare Bach or Handel and Baroque music to Schoenberg, another Jew. Right. And, and just to give the audience a little bit of understanding on, on the difference in tonality and beauty and all those things. Right. Right. Bach, Bach uh, wrote a book called The Well-Tempered Clavier, which allowed modulation throughout the entire circle of fifths which meant that uh, you could now modulate from one key to another uh, and uh, without creating wolf tones or these howling tones. Okay, this was a great invention. One of the men who uh, benefited from it was Beethoven, whose father beat him if he didn't play the well-tempered clavier every day. What Beethoven, what this meant was that there was a new vehicle for mimesis because when you change key, it's like changing mood. And so music is basically represents the motions of the soul. That's what you're imitating. That's what music imitates. And so you're out on a day and it's you're cloudy and you're feeling kind of gloomy and suddenly the sun comes out and you feel differently. Well, you can do that in music because those tones have a drama. The, the scale has a drama all of its own, the diatonic scale. Now you have the chromatic scale, uh, which is basically adding color to this, adding depth uh, uh, and and meaning and emotion to this, and the perfect you have the perfect balance with somebody like Beethoven uh, and Bach, who can add it at pr the precisely the right moment and achieve the goal, which is like shooting an arrow at a target. You can go off to the one side, you can go off to the other. Not enough emotion; it's boring. Too much emotion, you want to have a nervous breakdown. They achieved the goal, and then as the century, 19th century progressed in Germany, you had somebody like Wagner who was had difficulty controlling his sexual passions. And this found expression in music, uh, specifically in Tristan und Isolde. Uh, before that, it found uh, expression in Tannhäuser, which is a conflict between Christian culture, the pilgrim, 
strong diatonic melody. Ba 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 ba. It transfixes you. First time you hear it, you stop because it's so powerful. But then it gets waylaid in the Venusberg, which is sexual liberation. And at this point, you get chromatic uh, tonality. And you're starting to lose the thrust of the argument. The pilgrimage is being waylaid in the Venusberg. Well, uh, he was a devotee of sexual liberation and his vehicle was called Tristan and Isolde. And at this point, you mo- he kept modulating until he just modulated off uh, and never came back again. The whole genius of Beethoven was to create this incredible emotion and in- emotional intensity and then resolve it at the end. Wagner never resolved it at the end, and you had endless kind of modulation, endless sexual uh, experience with no uh, Logos regulation. This inspired a whole generation of Germans to basically abandon sexual morality, and one of the Germans who did that was a man by the name of Arnold Schoenberg, who had converted. He was a Jew, born a Jew, but he converted to Lutheranism, and he was swept up into the sexual revolution in Vienna uh, and wrote Verklärte Nacht, which was basically his first, one of his first major pieces. And it was basically a smeary version of Tristan. His wife got swept up. She committed adultery with a painter. And at this point, Schoenberg was wounded, deeply wounded. And he felt betrayed by this Christian culture that he adopted. He renounced Christianity and at that point, he returned to the Judaism of his youth, and now he vowed revenge on the Christian West through music. And that revenge was first atonality and then 12-tone music, which was, again, a form of uh, ideological warfare. Just try to listen to Moses and Aaron for a while, and you'll know what I'm talking about. No, no, I'd rather not. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if, um, can, can you speak a bit about the Frankfurt School of Thought, people like Adorno and their impact on uh, our sociology and, and society today? Yeah, Adorno uh, and Thomas Mann ended up in Hollywood uh, after, uh, uh, after the beginning of World War II. They came over in the 30s. And Adorno had a huge role in uh, Thomas Mann's understanding of music, first of all, he was a musical theoretician, uh, and he also pl- became a character in Thomas Mann's uh, book, Dr. Faustus, uh, which is uh, uh, basically about a man who is a, uh, the main character is Adrian Leverkun, and he's kind of a combination of Nietzsche and Schoenberg. So he's like a Nietzschean composer. Uh, he had a, a, a tremendous influence. And if you read Dr. Faustus, which I think is completely unreadable. I mean, I tried in both English and German. I kept switching back and it didn't make any sense to me in either language. It's just too long. But uh, Schoenberg is the devil. Uh, not, not Schoenberg. Adorno is the devil uh, because he is always involved in kind of negation. Uh, as Goethe said, ich bin der Geist der Stets verneint. I am the spirit of eternal negation. And that was the influence he had on uh, Thomas Mann. The other influence of the Frankfurt School was broader. Basically, the Jewish organization, the American Jewish Committee, brought all these the Jews in the Frankfurt School over and immediately weaponized them by getting them involved into in the uh, 
by the way, the Italian artist is Pietro Anagoni, in case you want to look it up. But the AJC got them involved in the authoritarian personality, which was a direct assault on the family and the majority population in the United States of America. Uh, this they were immediately put to work. This shows you the gratitude the Jews had for being left into the country. They immediately go to work to destroy uh, the culture of the country that accepted them. Uh, and uh, the, the net result of this authoritarian personality was the Jewish science that became the basis for the uh, Brown versus school board decision. Everyone, Murray Friedman said it was based on Jewish science. It's not me who's saying this. And he was the head of the AJC in Philadelphia. Uh, uh, it led to, which led to the whole racial based ideology that is probably the, the dominant ideology in America right now. I see. Thank you. Uh, before I will allow the audience to ask questions, I would like for you to speak about uh, the book that you wrote, The Slaughter of Cities. Unfortunately, I don't have the book, but I think it's uh, something very important. So maybe you can say a few words about it. Yes. Uh, the Slaughter of Cities was uh, basically my book about the destruction of Catholic ethnic neighborhoods in America. It was a, a, a project of the federal government, but the, the, the thinkers behind the main thinker behind it uh, was Jewish. It was Louis Wirth, who was a, uh, a German Jew from Trier, who had come to the United States and was a sociologist at the University of Chicago. So basically what we had here is uh, uh, the Jews... Uh, and the WASP, I don't want to leave the WASP out because they were a powerful force at this point, uniting under aus the auspices of things like the Ford Foundation, bringing blacks up from the South, uh, sharecroppers who lived in an agriculture economy, had no idea about cities, bringing them into cities like Philadelphia, which is where I grew up, and uh, unleashing them on the Catholic neighborhoods, creating panic among the Catholics, and then basically taking over the neighborhoods and destroying Catholic political power in cities like Philadelphia. That's the world I grew up in. I uh, I was six years old when we moved from an Irish neighborhood in North Philadelphia to a deracinated suburban-type neighborhood in Northeast Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, that was a blow to uh, 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 my entire generation was subjected to this. And it was a blow against Catholic identity because Catholics could no longer have their own culture. They couldn't have their neighborhoods anymore. They had to be subjected to the federal government. And at that point, so when you're, it happened to the Poles, happened to the Irish, happened to the Germans, happened to the Italians. So if you're a Pole, uh, if you live in Chicago, you're a Pole. Once you leave your Polish neighborhood and you move to a suburb, you become white. And once you become white, you become a bad person, which is the situation right now. So I will be happy to take questions. I have to cut out for a minute. I will be back in two minutes and we can do the question period. Thank you very much. Let's answer some questions now. Yes, uh, thank you for coming back. Just one more question, I, which is very important to me, I forgot. Uh, how do you see the situation with immigration today? All those incompatible people who are, uh, you know. Yeah, they, the yeah. United States has to take control of its borders. You can't have a country unless you have borders. And if your country, you're not in control of your borders, someone else is in control of your borders, and they are using a weaponized migration to destroy your culture. This is precisely the story of uh, the slaughter of cities. It was, but it was intra-American 
migration. The blacks who were flooded into ethnic neighborhoods and places, Catholic neighborhoods like Philadelphia, were weaponized by the Ford Foundation to destroy the culture. That is the whole point of mass weaponized migration. Do you think it's too late for Europe with the it's magnitude never, of immigration there? Ask me in the spring. The crucial, crucial test case is going to be Germany. Can Germany break out of the social engineering that was imposed on them after the war? Can they break out? Can they return to the Catholic faith? Can they beg God for deliverance? Can they abandon the sexual liberation that crippled them? These are all crucial questions that are going to become existential this winter because they're, they're they won't have any energy. They're going to be freezing to death in their apartments. The, pain, the main point of suffering is that it brings you closer to God. That is why God allows suffering. That is the whole point of the book of Job. And if, if the Germans will have an opportunity at this moment, I just pray that they make good use of that opportunity. Okay, thank you. Uh, Roy, please go ahead. Can you hear me? I can. Yes. Uh, good evening. Good afternoon, uh, Dr. Jones. First of all, let me start by saying that this is a, a very, very huge honor for me uh, to have you here. I'm a personal, uh, I'm a personal fan. I love your work and I want to thank you for contributing to the truth conversation that we're trying to promote because it seems like we're already losing it. And we need more people like you. So first of all, uh, let me start by saying thank you. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I have a few questions. Uh, I don't want to take the mic for too long, but I think it's a very important question for people to understand what is going on right now in the world, especially in the Jewish context of it. Uh, I myself grew up Jewish uh, at a bar mitzvah. I'm circumcised. I served in the IDF. I'm the, the, the complete package of uh, Israeli that you can think of. And recently, for the past, uh, let's say, six, seven months, I uh, <clears throat> was exposed to the Jewish connections in almost every uh, pinnacle of power, if you can say that. Uh, and I just, I, I, have a few, I have a few questions. The first question is that I like to ask is, if you can elaborate a little bit more, I know you already talked about it, about the whole Jewish control of the media. Uh, why, why is it so important for, for the Jews to control the media? And a little bit, uh, if you can elaborate a little bit more about what's going on right now with Kanye West in all of this uh, Jewish media context. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, well, first of all, it's important for Jews to control the media because the Jews are always a minority. No matter where they are, they're a minority. And if you can control the narrative, you, if you can control the flow of information, you, ex, you increase your power over the entire population. That is, that's the crucial factor that you have to understand where you're dealing with Jewish control of the media. And as I said, uh, the, the crucial turning point came when uh, the Jews broke the production code in Hollywood with the, with the movie The Porn Broker. Once there, once there was no control over the, the Jewish uh, control of the narrative, Uh, they took over the entire culture. So it, after World War II, just to give you an example, I just did a piece on the Morgenthau plan. Morgenthau was the Jew who was the secretary of treasury under uh, Roosevelt. He had a plan for uh, the destruction of Germany. 
Okay, starve them to death, deindustrialize. The Greens are bringing that into a, a play right now. But at that point, there were enough people who considered themselves uh, Christian, uh, like Herbert Hoover, the former president, and they started talking about this is Semitic vengeance and we can't tolerate that. That's because the Jews didn't have total control at that point. Once they got control through the the uh, uh, the breaking of the production code, they basically could could shut down any conversation that they didn't want. And we have reached the point now where basically just yesterday, okay, Elon Musk buys uh, Twitter, and within 24 hours, the ADL issues a statement saying, "You better do exactly what we say, and you have to ban anyone who says the Jews who could control the media." This is this shows you how total this control That's is insane. right now. That's completely insane. It, it was amazing, amazing. Within 24 hours, the ADL is now ordering Elon Musk around because he to make sure he follows their program in talking about media. And yet, if I say or you say the Jews control the media, they would immediately call me an anti-Semite. So, That's to get specifically to Kanye, the Jews created the Black Jewish Alliance uh, after. Uh, the death of the lynching of Leo Frank. That's when the ADL came into existence. They was also a created a murderer. Right. Yeah. He murdered that 12 year old, 13 year old girl in, a, in the pencil factory. That story, by the way, is in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. If you, if you want to read it, but at the, the, the other organization they created at this time was the national advancement for the national association for the advancement of colored people, which is now the NAACP. And it was basically an operation to control the black population of this country by mobilizing them, them as proxy warriors for a Jewish uh, a revolutionary takeover of the country. The first target of the NAACP was Marcus Garvey, who was a, uh, a, a Haitian, uh, no, sorry, a Jamaican who was living in Harlem at that time. He shows up at the uh, headquarters of the NAACP. It's nothing but Jewish lawyers. There's not a black person in the entire operation. So they get a token black by the name of W.E.B. Dubois, a black guy from Harvard, and they go after Marcus Garvey to destroy him because they don't like black nationalism. They don't like a cohesive black uh, ethnic group. He wasn't separatist, right? He was a separate. Yes, he was. Yes, he, he was. He was. He had a black star shipping line. He was going to ship uh, blacks back to Africa. I'm not. I'm not trying to endorse all of Marcus Garvey's schemes. I, I, I'm just saying that the Jews perceived Marcus Garvey as a threat, and they destroyed him. Well, this is exactly what's happening to Kanye West. Kanye West, uh, you know, I, I'm the richest black guy in the world. I think it went to his head, if you want my honest opinion. I think he felt that he was a free man because he had a billion dollars in the bank. No, that's not true. Okay, so we, he, need to understand, he, we need to understand his industry is coming in. The, it's coming from the music industry, which is also dominated by Jews. Right. Exactly. So like the Harlem Renaissance, uh, jazz, all of these things were, were Jewish, Jewish mobilization of blacks for political purposes, namely using the black as a vehicle for sexual liberation, as a paradigm of sexual liberation. I gave that talk at Harvard. <laughs> it was the most controversial talk of the year, uh, but it's true. Uh, and that's why it was controversial. So that's that's where Kanye's coming from. He's wakes up. Uh, does this uh, White Lives Matter t-shirt, which I think is funny. The Jews get upset. They start canceling his con 
contracts and he gets upset and it escalates to the point where, where it is today. And I think it's a pyrrhic victory for the Jews because you may, you may rein in Kanye, but you alienated a whole group of black people by doing that, by exposing the fact that what he said was true. The Jews do control the narrative. They do control the entertainment industry. And if you don't like it, they'll destroy you. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, do you think that if, uh, I mean, if you look on every uh, apex of power, whether it's the media, whether it's uh, uh, porn, whether it's uh, the, the music industry, abortion, feminism, uh, illegal immigration, you see the same tribe, you see the same people. I would argue that they even look the same. Uh, they have the same last names. Do you think that we are dealing here with uh, some kind of a bloodline, some kind of a different strain of people? I personally don't think that they are Israel. I don't call them Israel. That's why I always argue that they call themselves Jews and not Israel. But that's just my opinion. Do you think that we are dealing here with uh, a group of people that are in America? I believe they are less than, they are less than 3% of the population. Do you think that we're dealing here with a, a specific bloodline? No. No, I, 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 I completely reject the idea of some type of biological determinism or some type of biological continuity here with the Jews. Okay. Because Jesus Christ rejected it in the Gospel of St. John. The Jews were the ones who came to him and said, we're, we're the seed of Abraham. We have real special DNA, and you better take us seriously. And Jesus kind of laughed at him and said, no, it's not the DNA. I'm saying, for, and secondly, uh, there's there's no continuity, biological continuity between the Ashkenazi and uh, the the Hebrew people of that time. No continuity. That's, that's Ashkenazi, what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. But but it's it's not. Uh, it's there is no continuity. I'm saying I'm not saying there is a continuity. The continuity. This is why I wrote the book. The continuity is Geist. The continuity is a spirit, and the spirit is the rejection of logos. That is Jewish identity. So if you, so you the Jewish identity, it's mostly in, in the mind rather that's than exactly the, right. That's exactly what I'm saying. And that the case of I don't know whether you know about the case of Oswald Rufeisen, uh, a Polish Jew during World War Two. Uh, he has to go into hiding because he's a double agent. He's uh, alerting Jews to the Nazis, what the Nazis are doing. He then uh, hides out in a Carmelite convent. At this point, he becomes a a Christian. And after that, he becomes a priest. Okay, so now he's a Catholic priest. And then he suddenly hears about Israel. The state of Israel is declared. He's saying, well, uh, I'm a Jew. I'm going to Israel. I want citizenship there. He goes there, and they turn him down. Now, wait a minute. What happened here? What happened here? He was born of a Jewish mother. He had the DNA that you need to do this. Well, why didn't they accept him? Because he became a Christian. And what does it mean to be a Christian? It means you are rejecting the rejection of Logos, which is the Jewish identity. And so the Supreme Court said, no, you're not a Jew if you become a Christian. What does that mean? Does that mean that water of baptism, that water that got poured on your forehead, did that change your DNA? No, it's because Judaism or the Jewish identity is a spiritual identity, and it's a negative spiritual identity, which means it's based on the rejection of Logos. And that's why Jews have been revolutionaries throughout human history. 
very interesting take on it. Very interesting. I have a, a, a third and last questions. I constantly, throughout my uh, investigation into the Jewish tales, let's just call it that way, I constantly watching rabbis talking about the Noahide laws and what's going, what's, what will happen with Ishmael and Edom and the destruction of Edom. And we need this uh, clash between the civilization of Edom and Ishmael in order to bring uh, Moshiach ben David. Can you elaborate a little bit more about uh, Chabad Lubavitch and their approach on the Noahide laws? And what's your take on it? I just want to hear your opinion. Well, that, Thank the, you. Noahide, the Noahide laws are, uh, they are an attempt to colonize the Goyim and turn them into uh, proxy warriors for the Jews. It's a, we, don't, we don't need uh, some rabbi telling us uh, about our religion. We have a religion. The religion is the antithesis of of the Jewish of the Jewish religion, uh, both then and now, I think it's simply an a, an attempt to uh, lure people in to some type of comfortable space where there will be no conflict. We are never going to have a world without conflict. There is never going to be a time when the forces of Logos are not going to be in contention with the forces of anti Logos. I, as a Christian, have to accept that. It's the city of God or the city of man. It's going to be in contention for all of human history until the end, until the Messiah comes for the second time. That's the problem here. And how do I, how do we deal with it? Uh, are we, okay. How do the Christian, how does Christianity deal with it? First of all, some, the last program I have my podcast, some Jew comes on and says, you hate Jews. I said, no, I don't. I love Jews. I said, I love Jews because they are my enemy. And Jesus Christ said we had to love our enemies. Okay. Practically, the Catholic Church, when the Roman Empire collapsed, the Catholic Church had to deal with this issue. Okay. Because the Roman Church, Catholic Church was the government now because everything else had collapsed. And the, the, the modus vivendi they come up with was Secus Judeus Non, which lasted for about 1500 years. I'm saying it's still workable today. What is Secus Judeus Non? On the one hand, no one has the right to harm the Jew. On the other hand, the Jew has no right to destroy your culture. He has no right to undermine your morals. He has no right to use the instruments of culture to ridicule your faith. That, I think, is a coherent uh, modus vivendi that is still possible and could work today. Final question. I know I said I have only three questions, but this is going to be my last question. Can you elaborate a little bit more about, you know, I heard more than one time, I heard that anti-Semitism is basically a reaction to Semitism. Uh, and throughout my investigations, I couldn't help to notice that Jews, Jewish people were uh, expelled from over a hundred countries and it was mostly about money lending. What 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 is this, what what is it the, the the thing with with Jewish uh, uh, attempt to control the the flow of of the monetary system? Uh, for, uh, again, we're talking about the the position of a minority, uh, uh, where a, a minority in any country where they go, uh, oftentimes a despised minority. It's mostly because Jews are allowed to use usury. 
and the well, Goyim are not allowed to do it, as according to the right. Christian faith. Right. So if you're if you're interested in the big story, I wrote a book called Barren Metal: A Con- uh, 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 A History of Capitalism as the Conflict Between Labor and Usury. So you're right. Usury was illegal in the uh, in the uh, Christ- Christian Europe uh, during the Middle Ages, uh, but uh, the princes always needed money. And the prince was always subject to uh, the deal. And the deal is this, basically. The Jew comes to the prince and says, I'll lend you money at 5% if you let me in and let me charge 43 and a third percent to everyone else. And no prince, princes were always willing to do this. St. John Capistran called it the privileges of the Jews. This had a catastrophic effect, first of all, on the finances of this, this period, St. Bernardino of Siena said that usury kills both charity and business. My oldest son uh, was a, got a job on Wall Street cold calling, trying to sell stocks at a time when the Fed was paying 19% interest. That's an example of how usury kills business. Okay. And so what happened here is that basically the prince made out and at a certain point, everyone else got into debt. And at that point, the overwhelming majority of the population understood uh, that if we basically uh, burn the Jews' house down, we'll burn the records down, and we'll all be out of debt. And that's what happened. And the king, in order to avoid some type of violent reaction, would expel the Jews. And that's why Jews were basically expelled from 109 countries uh, in Europe over this period of time. Thank you very much, Dr. Jones. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Liran? Hey, hello. I have a question. <clears throat> I wanted to ask you, uh, Dr. Jones, let's say that uh, a Jew comes to you and uh, he tells you, okay, I understand the what happened and the evil ways that uh, our people went through and now I want to do something else. I want to do something better. I want to avoid this evil ways, how do I do it? What would you uh, suggest to a, a Jew who comes to you like that? What would you tell him? Okay, let, let, me, let me take historical precedent here. The, all, this whole, all of the Jews who accepted Jesus Christ were terrorized by the Jews who did not accept them. They were hiding in fear until uh, the uh, Pentecost until the Holy Spirit descended upon them. And then they all came out and said, Peter emerged. This is the man who denied Jesus Christ. He emerges. He's full of zeal for the faith. And he walks into Jerusalem. And the first thing out of his mouth is, you killed Christ. How's that for an opening uh, line in Catholic Jewish dialogue? And the, 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 the response was the Jews were cut to the heart. And then the Jew says, what must I do to be saved? Now, if you don't state honestly the situation, the Jew is not going to be cut to the heart. And if the Jew is not going to be cut to the heart, he's not going to ask what must I do to be saved. And so all I can say is what St. Peter said at this point. He said, you must be baptized. This is the fulfillment of the promise that had been given to Abraham and Moses and all of the prophets. It was fulfilled. And if you want to have complete uh, unity with Logos, you should accept the Logos incarnate and be baptized. Thank you. Um, Dr. Jones, do you still have patience and energy for a few more questions? Yes. 
Thank you. Um, one second. Warwick, uh, please go ahead. Can you hear me? Hello. Yes. Oh, great to speak to you, Dr. Jones. Um, it's lovely, lovely to speak to you. I just wanted to say, first of all, happy uh, All Saints Day. Thank you. Thank you. And going back to you, we were talking earlier about Kanye West, the artist formerly known as Kanye West. And what I did know today, <laughs> Dr. Jones, is that the, in the reading for today, it actually is the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, if I could just enjoy you for 30 seconds, it says, I won't read it all, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. But it says, blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye, blessed are ye, when they shall revile you and persecute you and speak all that is evil against you untruly for my sake. I just think we're talking about the Kanye situation. I have got a question, uh, Dr. Jones, and it's this fundamentally. Do you think that Kanye will be seeing Christmas? Yes. Yes. Okay. I, they, they can't they can't they can't kill Kanye West. I guarantee Great. you that. No no one can kill Kanye West. Okay. Yeah. They're they're gonna they're gonna have to deal with him uh by destroying him. They don't want to kill him. What they want, the Jews want Kanye West sitting on a park bench all by himself. We don't know, but what you're absolutely right. That is, you're absolutely right. That is the crucial passage that Kanye should be reading right now because Kanye is a Christian. Yeah. And he, he's, he's been saying this repeatedly, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's not the money. I, it's, I, I, he has some sense that he's got to there here to fulfill God's plan for his life. And so God uh, will listen to your prayers. Uh, so be yeah. careful what you pray for, because he'll grant you uh, suffering. Yeah. Uh, because suffering is the main thing that draws us closer to God. And so Kanye is going to be put to the test. And I think Christians are should expect that. And Kanye should expect it. And whether he has a lot of money in the bank account or not, that's not the important thing for a Christian. It's yeah. whether you're, you're it's whether you're doing what exactly is said in the and the uh, Beatitudes that you already read to us. You know? Absolutely. Do you think, Dr. Jones, that the blacks, like the Christian blacks in America, seem slow to be getting behind Kanye West, whose message is very true? The, the, main, the main problem among the black Christians is the Kanye West problem. They, they have faith, but they can't quite resolve this faith with the, the Sixth Commandment, which is the prohibition against uh, adultery. Or, or sexual immorality. The, the, the black family is a complete disaster because of illegitimacy. Yeah. Uh, they're, they, they have to deal with this problem. Uh, Kanye West was involved with, I mean, you know, if anybody who's married to Kim Kardashian, well, anyway, yeah. I don't want to get into that. I don't want to get into that. Okay. Well, it's a model. You're you, absolutely right. It's a question of models, Dr. Jones. One very quick last final thing is that you, you talk about the Jews and, and baptism and what Peter said, and I agree. The problem we've got is that this last week there was a story that the Pope came out and said, well, the, the neat priests and nuns also watch pornography like everybody else. And that was in the, in the um, New York Times or the, whatever the other paper is called. And so that's like, and my question is, 
if that's the situation with the Holy Father, who's going to baptize the Jews? You're talking about the greatest crisis in the church right now. You're absolutely right. This is a huge crisis because there are people in the Catholic Church who believe that uh, one group of people can buy get to heaven by worshiping Jesus Christ, and the other group of people can get to heaven by killing Jesus Christ. That's impossible. That is not going to work. The Catholic Church is in a deep, a deep, deep state of crisis. It has been in this crisis for my entire adult life. I got, yeah. I got fired from my position as a Catholic professor at a Catholic university because I was against abortion. The Bless Jews you. have taken, they have taken over Catholic culture. Uh, I just, it's a, it's a catastrophe. I agree with you. It's a catastrophe. It's proof of the supernatural origin of the church because yeah. it's a catastrophe. But it's hitting all time low. It seems to be just hitting at like a, a, a lower and lower all the time, Doctor Jones. With like the the, the 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 what you say in terms of libido dominante and the weaponization of porn. And then the Pope this week comes out and says, "Well, priests and nuns watch porn online like everybody else." Okay, that's a reason to ban pornography. It's not a reason to allow nuns and priests to watch it. Definitely. Why didn't he figure that out? This is this yeah. is this is why you, you this is why you have to ban pornography. Well, my this question is, to the Holy Father would be: Well, Holy Father, are you watching it as well? Yeah. Well, well, you can always tell us you're a psychologist, Doctor Jones. It's absolute pleasure to speak to you. Uh, I could talk all night with you. Uh, you need to get your postage sorted out for Europe when you send in the books. Long old eyes in the postage. Can't we get a better deal on the postage? I can't do anything about postage rates. I wish I could. Right. I wish someone could. Dr. John, so do I. Absolute pleasure. God bless. Thank you. Thank you, Warwick. Uh, Liran? Hi, Jones. Um, I was actually going to ask you um, in regards to immigration to the U.S., um, are you for immigration to the U.S.? I am for legal immigration. I am okay. the child of immigrants. Uh, you, immigration is not something that you can do in, in a, a reckless, weaponized way because you need to assimilate the population that is coming in. So this, the classic example was the Roman Empire, which had a, a, a pro, a, a, a process of assimilatio where basically if you were a goth and you wanted to become a Roman, that's fine. Uh, you have to learn Latin and then we'll send you to Syria because there are no goths in Syria. This broke down at the end of the Roman empire when basically the entire Gothic nation crossed the Danube and overwhelmed this process of assimilation and basically took over. That's analogous to the situation in the United States because the Mexicans or anyone else who makes it into Mexico can simply walk across the river and uh, come into the country and with no criteria, no uh, selection process whatsoever. The Democrats are promoting this uh, reckless immigration because they think all these people will become Democrats and therefore they will outpopulate the, uh, the Republicans. But as I said before, if you don't have borders, you don't have a country. You have to regulate the borders and take control of immigration. 
Um, yes, I understand. Um, I was I've heard people accuse um, the Jews as trying to, um, in regards to uh, the U.S., try to create a melting pot there. Um, in my personal opinion, the U.S. has been a melting pot even before Jews immigrated in in masses. Um, is that not the case? No, it is. It is true. The Jews have weaponized migration. So the first example was the Immigration Act of 1965, which was sponsored by two Jews, uh, Jacob Javits, the senator, and Emanuel Sellers. And basically that was to dilute the European population by bringing people from other places who had no real coherence. Because Louis Wirth, the, the sociologist I mentioned, said he was worried about Catholics. A lot of people were worried about Catholics at this time. So that was the case. It's also the case in in uh, in Europe right now. Uh, have you seen that video of uh, by uh, Barbara Lerner Specter? It became famous where she's saying basically the Jews will teach the Europeans how to become a multi multicultural uh, con co uh, continent or whatever. Well, maybe they don't want to be. I mean, I know a lot of Irish people who would prefer not to have all of these immigrants constantly being brought into their country. This is this is again this 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 Jewish fantasy of tikkun olam, which basically they can do anything they want and wreck your culture, and then you're supposed to thank them for doing that. This has got to stop. This has got this this Jewish narcissism has got to stop. We can't allow our cultures to, uh, to be run by people like this. Do you see that the um, Europeans, when they came to the U.S., that they assimilated to the Indian ways or they were respectful of uh, becoming a part of the actual original people who were from that, that side of the world? That's a, you know, it's a complicated question. and You have to bring into the fact of uh, both North and South America. And if you really want to get into it, you have to talk about the difference between English Protestantism and French Catholicism or, or Spanish Catholicism. So I'll just give you a little anecdote. Uh, I go to nor the, the Fort Michimilli Mackinac is at the northernmost point on the southern peninsula of Michigan. And there's a story about the, the French. This was New France, story about the, the Indians there. So the Indians, uh, first story, the uh, Indian and the voyageur. These are the guys that paddle the canoes to get the furs. They're getting married, and there's a Catholic priest that's marrying. So this is the indigenization. The French and the Indians are marrying to the point where you couldn't tell them apart uh, in Quebec and places like that after a number of generations. At this point, uh, the English conquer New France, and they bring their own trading post in, and they bring a Jew in as the head of the trading post. And the Jew imme this immediately starts cheating the Indians. This is not me. This is not, this is the state of Michigan saying this, their official video. At that point, the Indians uh, are playing high lie or something outside. They throw the ball over the stockade. They knock on, come, let me in to get the ball. They come in, they slaughter everyone. And at that point, they declare uh, their allegiance to the King of France. If you're not going to deal with this issue with this type of complexity in mind, you're not going to understand what happened here. Um, yes, and one more um, question for you. Um, in regards to, um, do you acknowledge that there's been acts of racism um, within the United States uh, towards groups that are considered non-white? Yes, we created racism. It's, it was created 
I, I have uh, I, I have the I have long discussions with the white boys, and I, I'm trying to convince them that I'm not white. I'm biracial. I'm Irish and German. But the idea of the white, the idea of white came into existence in Virginia in 16, I think it's 1619. It was a play in London at the time, and it's the first time they used white to describe uh, people. Okay, and why did they use white? Because there were black slaves from Africa and there were indentured slaves largely from Scotland. Uh, they came together for the first time and the capitalist ruling class wanted to divide them. So they started attaching privilege to one group and denying privilege to another. So, of course, there was racism involved in this thing, uh, in the development of the United States of America. There, yes, you're right. You can't you can't deny that. The, but if, if, we're be, if we're going to be specific, we have to talk about the development of this idea and in the late 19th century through Darwinism. And these, these biological determinism that took over thought all over the Western world. Uh, that's, that's the problem. It's not the fact that somebody has different color skin or it's not primarily economic exploitation, which was certainly the case, but you've got an ideology now that has weaponized DNA and turned it into a determinant of character and, and thought. And that's not true. And so, uh, to give you the classic example, Hitler, Got all of his ideas about race from America. They're not German ideas. Race is not a German word. He got them from Madison Grant, who was the racial theorist from America. America, British speaking Anglo America is the source of this racial ideology. Okay. And as far as it comes, when it comes to like um, this new movement of DNA checking, um, what is your opinion on that? Well, I, I don't, uh, first of all, what's, what's the purpose? Are you talking about like diseases like Tay-Sachs disease, which can be discovered by gene through genetic markers? There's nothing wrong with that, I suppose. But I'm, I'm totally skeptical about, uh, big farmers, uh, and their ulterior motives. I, I, I think that they are just using this as a way of gaining control over people. Uh, but I, I'm saying, uh, if that's, if that's your case, if that's the reason, then that's fine. If you're doing it to find out who you are, you're barking up the wrong tree because your DNA does not determine your character. It may just determine the shape of your nose and the color of your hair and so on and so forth. But logos determines character because we are creatures of logos. And that is a function of the mind and not of the brain or any other part of the body. Sure. No, I understand. As far as like intermarriage, um, what's your thoughts on that? I'm the product of interracial marriage. My father's Irish and my mother's German. So Theodore Roosevelt would have said they were, these were two separate races. It doesn't, I, I have, there, there's nothing I can say. It's not part of Catholic dogma. I am, my identity is a Catholic. If you go to a place like Mexico, you're talking about the cosmic race there. It, the, the whole country is basically a, a mixture between the Spanish and the Indian, indigenous Indians. So uh, as a Catholic, it would be hard to formulate a, a, a critique, a, a, a criticism of race mixing. No, thank you for uh, explaining and taking the time. To... Thank you You're very welcome. much. Thank you. Um, would you like to take another question or we are done? What, what, one more question. I got to go. Okay, William, uh, go ahead, William, if you're here. 
No. William, can you hear me? Okay. Are you talking to me? Yes, you, you raised your hand. I thought you want to ask oh, a I question. Oh, I, I, I didn't realize I did. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. Hey, uh, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, I, I really I didn't have a question offhand concerning your topics today. I, I really respect and admire you. Uh, I sometimes I like to hear a little more of what you have to say about Medjugorje, but, but uh, because I have I, I, I think I dis have a disagreement there. But uh, is this a form to ask you what, what you think about divine will or is that is that just totally off topic for you guys? Divine will? Yeah. Well, Luisa Picaretta. Are you familiar with her? Oh, oh, oh no, no, I'm not familiar with that. No, I'm not. Okay, then I'm, I, I won't trouble you, sir. Uh, other than that, I, I just appreciate what you're what you're saying right now. I really, I really, I, I had no idea that, that I was I had raised my hand, so to speak. Okay, so God, so God bless you. God bless everybody. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Um, should right. we take someone else's question? Or? I I think I better go. I think I better go. Uh, but I wanted before I go, I wanted to say how uh, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to talk. I think we had a real meeting in the minds, and I'm thinking that's that's the first step toward getting out of the mess that we're in right now. This meeting in the minds, coming to some type of consensus because we need some type of global consensus right now. And I'm saying that the only possibility for any global consensus is logos. And so, I'd like to leave it on that note. But thank you again for a, what I thought was a great discussion. Thank you very much, Dr. Jones. It's a great opportunity for me personally and for the group. I think that uh, our members will be able to educate themselves with your knowledge and wisdom. So thanks for your dedication and for putting yourself on the line. I really appreciate everything. And maybe you can honor us in the near future again with another session. I'd be happy That's to. I'd be happy to. That's wonderful. So thank you very much and have a beautiful evening. And I will be sending you. your recording to, to Mike. So Great. You can Thank you. It. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.